be in Colossians chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And as you're turning there, uh, let me say, this is a very short passage, but goodness, there is so much gold here. Uh, I think we're going to struggle to get it all in, in the time that we have. So let me just kind of give you an overview of the text, and then I'll do some explanation as we go through it. Uh, This kind of breaks down like this. So if you were to draw a map of this passage, it would begin in verse 9. Paul's going to make a a statement that reveals his heart toward the Colossians. And he's going to tell them what he is praying for them. And that is a very significant prayer. And you'll see that begin to unfold in the second part of verse 9. And then, verses 10 through 11, possibly 12, depending on how you break it down, he's going to reveal why he's praying these things for them, and also more specifics about what he is praying. And then finally, in verses 13 and 14, he is going to remind all of us of some important theology that we need and that we need to build our lives upon. So toward that end, let's get after it. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you. So the first thing to pay attention to there is actually those first two words, and so. And so what that reveals to us is that this builds on what he had to say last week. So because verses 1 through 8 were true, now here's what's happening. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And so who's he talking about here? He's talking about... You know, Timothy's with him. This letter is coming kind of from the two of them. Uh, and so he wants them to know this is a, a team up. This is a, uh, a team effort in praying for them. And as he gives this example, look at the persistence that he says there. We have not ceased to pray for you. And that attitude, that action actually leads us to our first of several principles today. And that is <coughs> that our prayer should be consistent and persistent, consistent and persistent. And here's what I bet is true of your prayers, because it's often true of mine. That's not how we pray, if we're honest. We pray when we're in trouble. We pray when it's time to pray. We pray because things need to be prayed for. But we struggle in praying for things that, as the old folks used to say, that tarry. Prayers that are not answered immediately. And then our culture filters right into this. We have microwaves. Everything we get is on demand. You can stream, get whatever show you want. And that bleeds into our spirituality. But what Paul models for us here is consistency and persistency that is truly unique. But this is right in line with what Jesus is about over in Luke chapter 18. What does he tell? Multiple parables about uh, the persistent widow, for example. Uh, that continually brings her plea before what he calls the unrighteous judge, and he lauds her persistency and consistency. So let's take this attitude and action from Paul as a challenge and an encouragement to walk (coughs) in the same path. Now, what is he asking for on a regular basis? Look at it. Asking that you may be filled pay attention to that word, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, that word filled is important because part of the problem in Colossae is they are being offered two things. Number one is the idea that there is a greater filling available to them than what Jesus offers. 
Now, if you walk with Jesus, you know that's not true. But what they were being told was you need Jesus plus our secret passwords to get you into the great gnosis, as they called it. You need to follow these ascetic things from ancient Judaism, so on and so forth. You need all this if you really want to be filled. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm praying that you would be filled with what? The knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding. And that, my friends, is also not an accident. Now, when we hear the knowledge of his will, what do we typically think? Immediately. Okay, God, I need to know which car to buy. Do I buy a car? Do I buy a house? Do I buy this house? Do I send my kids to private school? Do I send my kids to public school? What are we doing here? I need to know. I need to know your will. Okay? That's good. We need to pray about that. But that's not what Paul is saying here. If he wanted to say that, we'd use different words. But what he's talking about (coughs) is a not just surface understanding, but a deep and thorough understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. It's the knowledge of his will according to the gospel to really plumb (coughs) the depths of that. And again, that's really important because they were being offered this counterfeit idea, this counterfeit knowledge. And to be honest with you, it looked very attractive. And some of the Colossians had fallen under that spell. And so he's writing to correct that and to try to spare those who haven't. And it's really interesting, too, and this is where where Greek matters. He uses this word here, epigenosis, okay? And that is a different word. So he's saying they're offering you gnosis. I'm offering you. God is offering you epigenosis. And the way he constructs this word here, spiritual, you can see it in the English, but it's even clearer in the Greek. It's in the emphatic use. And so he's saying to them passionately, humbly, but authoritatively, listen, this is what I'm praying, that you would have true knowledge, that you would be truly filled with the knowledge of Christ, and it would be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would get it that you would drink deeply from this well, and it would satisfy you. So, when we think about that in our day, is that not relevant? Is that not so relevant? Because even though we aren't, be, we aren't being offered <coughs> secret passwords in ancient Judaism, uh, unless you fall into Kabbalah, which is actually a thing, uh, what we are being offered is you need Jesus plus this best-selling author's book. You need Jesus plus this particular set of prayers and attitudes and activism, and then you're really going to get the spirituality. But what Paul is saying is, no, the true storehouse of riches is in Christ, it's in Christ alone, and everything else is secondary. Everything else is under the supremacy of Christ and Christ alone. So he is praying for them, and by extension, some 2,000 years later, through the inspiration of the Spirit, we are the beneficiaries of this same prayer even today. Now, look at verse 10. Because here, he moves from, here's what I'm praying for you, to here's why I'm praying it for you. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the first part of that verse is very important. So as. That is the indicator of a purpose clause. It's kind of like because. So I'm praying this for you so that this will happen, hopefully. And he says to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it's interesting there, word walking, you and I think, we're just you know cruising across the floor. <laughs> but in their day, they would have understood this as a Jewish metaphor for behaving oneself in a certain fashion. And he's saying, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our master teacher. I'm praying that you would walk in a way that reflects your deep and filled knowledge of Jesus. To say it colloquially today, that our walk matches our talk. That we Put our money where our mouth is spiritually. That's what he's saying, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. <clears throat> and some people would argue, if you want a word picture here, that it's almost like this walk idea It is kind of like a curtain rod in this passage. And a lot of the other things that he's going to hang on that curtain rod, coat hangers of obedience and so on, they are held up by this idea of walking. So when you take all this together <clears throat> in principle form, this is what he's saying. He's saying, like the Colossians, we too should seek to live lives that are reflective of the fact that we know Jesus. Now, let's break that down a little further. Because he fleshes that out, puts some hangers on this rod. He says, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, what he's generally talking about here is what we might call pursuing holiness, living in obedience to God, choosing what God wants done instead of what the world wants done in any given situation. Now, we do have to be careful here theologically. Paul is not in any way uh, purveying some kind of works righteousness. He's not saying if you're not fully pleasing to God in all your behaviors, then you're not fully pleasing to God and your salvation is in jeopardy. He's not saying that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, there's some people out there who would tell you that, but to be honest with you, they're just wrong. What he's saying is basically more like this, all right? I'm going to synthesize some Pauline theology here and tell you what he's saying. He's saying, you are fully pleasing to God already because you have been justified in Christ. You put your faith and trust in Jesus, God has looked at you, and he's declared you judicially righteous before him because of what he's done, not because of what you've done, Okay? That's the great exchange of the gospel right there. We have been uh, made just as if I'd never sinned because of what Jesus has done. There's a sense in which we are already fully pleasing to God, positionally. But what he's talking about here is the practically, <coughs> that that positional becomes practical and gets fleshed out in daily life. That's what he's praying for them, that you would grow in holiness that your financial management would look more like Jesus, that your parenting would look more like Jesus, that your uh, sexuality would look more like Jesus, that you were becoming more like Christ. That's what he's praying, fully pleasing. But then he also says this as well, bearing fruit in every good work. And again, this is kind of like what we talked about last week. These are the peach tree, or peaches on the peach tree, uh, the peaches of obedience, bearing fruit. It's the same idea that Paul uses over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So when you take this together, what is he saying? He's saying that like the Colossians, we should seek to bear fruit in serving God and others. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's 10,000 ways, both inside the church and beyond the church. Inside the church, it's all the things that we say, hey, we need somebody to do this. Work with the kids, set up the chairs, tear down the chairs. Uh, All the things that go into serving in a variety of ways. Community group, hosting community group, all those things. Mentoring somebody. That's bearing fruit in every good work. But what's the reality? We spend most of our time not together as the church, but scattered. And so this is all the things, or these are all the things that that are your personal path that God has marked out for you. All the day-to-day, seemingly mundane, may not even make much of a difference kind of stuff. God has good works, sovereignly, providentially prepared in advance for you to do out there. And so he's praying, and I'm praying, that that would be the case. So let's pause and ask a little question here. When I say those things... What comes to mind? When I say bearing fruit and good work, I bet that the Holy Spirit is bubbling some things up to the surface that he might be calling you into. And if he's not yet, he will. So let's be sensitive. Let's lean in and let's ask and let's see what only God can do in our church and in our individual lives. That's the way we need to walk in light of what he's saying here. Now, look on. He also says this, increasing in the knowledge of God. Another way you can translate this is growing in the knowledge of God. It's kind of like uh, bearing fruit, actually. Uh, Both this verb and that verb, the tense that they're in, it, it emphasizes a habitual pattern. So let me tell you what it's not. Let me tell you what it is. Just showing up on Sunday and hearing a sermon, God has more for you than that. If that's the only path that you have for increasing your knowledge of God, you're missing the bus. God has a banquet of ways that you can grow and increase in your knowledge of God throughout the week. And refuge, probably the biggest part of them, but not the only part of them, because we do this, and we teach this way kind of toward the deeper end of the pool on purpose. That's not accidental. Part of my responsibility and the responsibility of the other people who teach here is to take you as far as we can go into the Word of God. That's why the lion's share of my work week every week is working on sermons. It's it's because of verses just like this to increase in the knowledge of God. That's why Laurie does what she does. That's why your community group leaders do what they do. We want to see people increase in the knowledge of God and then also point you toward all the other good resources that are out there. And goodness, there's plenty. I don't even have time to list them all. Some of my favorites, Gospel Coalition is kind of a one-stop shop for all that now, but there's plenty of other good ministries out there. But it's blogs, it's podcasts, it's books, it's all the things to help you grow in that direction. And so the question I think, or let me give you the principle, and then I'll ask you the questions. Like the Colossians, we should also seek to increase in the knowledge of God. 
So the question becomes, how much of a priority is that for you? And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that all you do is sit around and listen to theological stuff and talk about theological stuff and never share the gospel with anybody else. I I have seen that before, and we are not going in that direction. But what I am saying is, of the time that you have commuting, of the time that you have getting dressed in the morning, of the time, the, the little gaps in your day, are you taking advantage of all the wonderful things that God has to offer us to increase in our knowledge? And, and let me just say, I know a number of you, because I've talked to a lot of you, you're wrestling with some heavy stuff right now. What, what, what type of schooling do we do for our kids? Uh, how do we talk to our children about what pronouns this person in their high school class wants to use for themselves? How do we know what to do if the government does this or this or this? The, the loudest voice that you need in your life to answer any of those questions needs to be the Word of God. It needs to be the Word of God. And you're going to get that, like I said, you're going to get that here, you're going to get that through these websites, you're going to get through uh, Christians talking to each other, all the yes and amen to all that. But what I'm imploring you with is the issues of our day are too important for you and me to shoot from the hip and hope for the best. We need to be always increasing in our knowledge of the Word of God. And Paul knew that. He knew that for them. Because here they were, some of them had been Christians for five minutes, and this fancy teacher comes in and starts telling them all this stuff, and man, I I bet it sounded awesome. That's why some of them walked away from Jesus. And in the same way today, though our issues are different, the core issue is about the same. We've got to know the Word of God so that we know God Himself. But that's not all. Look at verse 11. (coughs) It says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, (coughs) for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, the word strengthened there speaks of continuous empowerment. It's translating the same root word that's used over in Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. And here's why that was of profound importance in Colossae. Part of what these fake teachers were offering was spiritual power. Who doesn't want spiritual power? Especially in that day. And Paul is saying, listen, you're not going to get the filling from these fake guys, and you're not going to get the power from the fake guys. You're going to get the power. You're going to get the endurance. And look, look at even what he says here. He just keeps stacking this up. Strengthened with all power according to what? His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so what I hope you're seeing is we keep like pulling on each one of these little threads here. Every word that Paul is using here is providential. It's not accidental. It is spirit-inspired. It is not, I woke up this morning and thought I'd write this down. He could not have shot a straighter, more well-placed arrow 
into the eye of the evil Gnostic monster that they were being ravaged by. And so what I hope this also kind of, this is a side quest here, but I hope this gives you even greater confidence in the Word of God. Because in inspiration, though he wrote it then, think about how relevant it is to now. That what do we want in our day? We want power. Where's it going to come from? It's going to come from God. And also here, this, this word here about endurance, listen to what this means. It literally means the capacity to see things through, to bear up under difficult circumstances. Do you not think we need that in our day? Do you not think that we might need that more in three years, in five years than we do today based on how things look? Friends, we do. And we need to hear this and we need to lean in and we need to let God have his full work within us. Also here, I find this one interesting. Patience with joy. The word patience here means to bear up with difficult people. I don't know about you. Don't nudge the person next to you. But I bet we could all use that from time to time. I know I can be difficult. It also speaks to even temperedness and that the attitude that we should have is that even when we are injured, we do not retaliate. It's to be like Jesus. And then to do that with joy. So when you take all that, the principle is this, that like the Colossians, we should seek to walk in the strength that God provides and endure with patience and joy. One of the things that helps me in this way is uh, Christian biography. There's a lot of ways to find it. I've told you about this a couple times since I've been here. Uh, there, unless they took it away, there is a children's series on Amazon that was probably the most helpful to me. I was watching it with the kids when they were younger, and man, I can, I can tell you what happened to Hudson Taylor. I can tell you what happened to Adoniram Judson, and it wasn't because I read it. It was because I saw it in a cartoon. That's why. But the point is the same. However you need to encode these stories on your spiritual core hard drive to help you remember that your situation is not new, it's not unique, somebody else has been there before, and the Lord helped them. Whatever you have to do to remind yourself that God is not going to give up on you, do it. Read it, listen to it, watch it, watch cartoons by yourself, whatever it takes. Do what you have to do to get this into you. And let me also say this. I know how hard this is because I know myself. And I know that if all of us right now in this moment are super inspired to encourage and have joy and patience, that's going to run out before you get to the van. Because that, that, that's the way we are. So we don't just need inspiration, okay? That's part of it. But you know the really effective people I know in life? They have inspiration, and you know what else they have? Systems. They have inspiration and they have systems. You might want to call them disciplines. And every single effective person I know, both in, in any sphere in which I am, they are all the same in that regard. 
And so my sincere encouragement to you, and I'm not yelling at you, man, I'm yelling for you, is to get with the Lord, maybe get with your Thriver leader. I mean, shoot, reach out to me. I'll help you any way I can. And let's figure out how to build the systems that lead to endurance into your life. Some of them are going to be the same. We all ought to be reading our Bible. We all ought to be praying. Ought to be hanging out with other Christians. Those are base level for everybody. But because of some of our unique difficulties and idiosyncrasies, and we all have them, and if you think you don't, you do. (laughs) We all do. We need specific systems to help us live into what Paul is praying for these guys today. And the Lord wants to help us. He is helping us. So let's continue to move with him as he moves. All right? Now, home stretch of the passage. This may be my favorite part, and I really like the others. If you think about this, let me use a different metaphor here. Football game. Paul has gotten us all the way to the five-yard line. And (coughs) And he is about to hand off the ball and break through the line and score the touchdown and then just gospel spike the ball. That's what he does right here in 12 through 14. And I hope that you hear it in the way that he offers it. Because look at verse 12, how he kind of opens this up here. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, first thing to pay attention to there, giving thanks to the Father. Not the fake God, not the Gnostic nonsense God, the Father. That's important. And he says from there, look at what the Father has done for you. Let's just take them a phrase at a time. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now that word qualified (coughs) basically carries with it the thought of making sufficient or competent but it also may shade into the sense of empowering or authorizing. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about their conversion. He's saying, listen, you guys have become Christians. And listen how awesome that is. And he's going to break it down. But then he also, (coughs) he uses this word picture here that I, I think is fantastic. It's almost like they and we were peasants in the king's kingdom. And they were brought into the king's throne room. And usually when peasants were brought into the king's throne room, what was going to happen? They were going to be killed. That's the way it went back in the old times. But what he's saying is, okay, the king has brought you in, but instead of killing you, I had somebody else killed. And now, listen to this. He's going to give this gift, and the gift is... All of these things are about to follow. We'll unpack them in a second. But before I can give you to them, I have to make you royalty. I have to make you not peasants, but sons and daughters. I have to bring you into my kingly family so that you can get the gifts that I'm going to give you. And then he starts laying that out. The inheritance of the saints in light. (coughs) This has to have some kind of tie uh, to, to ancient Israel promised land kind of stuff. And he's saying here, 
I've brought you into the promised land, and it's not just geographic, it's spiritual. You were in the land of Canaan, now because you're royalty, so to speak, and man, we need to be thankful for that. Think about the richness of that. Think about how that can help you this week. When you pull up and maybe some of you feel self-conscious because you drove in this kind of car and the person next to you had this kind of car and it cost as much as your house. Like that happens around here, let's be honest. And every one of us are kind of like, mm, why do I not have a car that's, you know, whatever. Those things happen. But in that moment, if you remember that you are royalty that has been qualified by your king and given these kingly blessings, do you not see how gospel identity will help you endure that moment, and instead of being jealous of that person, you pray for that person, you befriend that person, you get to know that person and share Jesus with that person. Do you see how practical this can be? But that's not all. Look at this. <laughs> he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the, the words here, delivered, <coughs> that is a picture of rescue. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this a few weeks ago, but there was horrible flooding in eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, so on. And there were multiple pictures of people. I remember this one. It made me almost cry just seeing it. It was a girl and her dog sitting on top of a house. And the water was almost to the top. And somebody came along and they plucked them off and they put them in the boat and they drove them away. Friends, that is what has happened to us. Except it's happened eternally. We weren't just saved from rising temporary floodwaters that would eventually recede. We were saved from eternal wrath. We have been delivered. We've been rescued. And what have we been rescued from? The domain of darkness. Jesus used that same kind of language over in uh, Luke 22. And he talks about that. that the darkness is symbolic of uh, spiritual ignorance and falsehood and sin. That also comes up in John and Romans. And it's also possible that Paul again, specifically, strategically, is talking about this Colossian heresy, that you've been delivered from all that. You don't have to go for this gnosis stuff. you got the real thing. And then being transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, we already talked about that a little bit, is to be transferred from one place to the other, and now you've gone from the kingdom of it's never enough, keep learning these special secret practices, to the kingdom of... Jesus is enough, and he's done it for you. Do you not just feel the gospel glory in that? Let me give you two more here. Redemption and forgiveness of sins. Redemption is a word that speaks of release that is brought about by the payment of the price. Payment of a price emancipation is the word that expresses the idea. And what he's saying there is, you were slaves and Jesus bought you. That old hymn, Because He Lives, one of my favorite lines in that, he sought me and he bought me 
with his redeeming blood. That's what he's saying there. Are you encouraged by that today? That you were at once a slave to sin, and now you've been purchased, you've been redeemed, and you're now a son and daughter. Then the final thing here, the forgiveness of sins. I think most of us understand that in the sense of we know that we needed forgiveness. But in case you didn't, let me share this with all of you here because we don't make any assumptions about anybody here at Refuge. All of us are born broken. The only way we can be saved is if Jesus saved us and every single one of us needs forgiveness. And if you came in here this morning and you are burdened by that and you've been trying to work your way to heaven and somehow forgive yourself into glory, let me just plead with you to stop and take the life preserver that is in this passage that Jesus will forgive your sins no matter what you've done. And in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, don't take it, but you take Christ and let's talk about that. Now, for the rest of us that have already made that turn, we all need to be reminded of the forgiveness of sins that is available to us in Christ. It's kind of like what we talked about before. The, we're practically, or excuse me, positionally forgiven. We've been forgiven. But on the daily, when we sin, we need to keep practically going back to the well and appropriating that positional forgiveness in the practical life. And I just can't help but think that some of us rolled in here this morning on fumes. Whatever your struggle is, and everybody's got them, it just wasn't a good week for you, whatever it is. And you need to be reminded of the forgiveness that Jesus has for you. It's for everybody that will, that will accept it. But I'm talking about for you. Because if you're ensnared in some kind of sin, it's so easy to be like, yeah, well, that forgiveness is great for this guy, but you don't know what I do. Don't listen to that. Listen to this. The forgiveness that is ours in Christ. It's here for you today. So let's wrap all this up. The last principle is this. Like the Colossians, we rest and rejoice in all of the good news that is ours in Christ. Friends, there is so much to interact with in this text that I couldn't hardly cram it into a single message. And my hope is that in doing what we tried to do today, that there have been multiple flashpoints in your mind, multiple ways where you've been encouraged, you've been challenged, you've been changed, you've been comforted, might have even been convicted. And my hope is that as we pray to end this message, this will be the beginning of what God wants to do in our lives through this passage that continues into tonight and tomorrow and community group and Thrive Group. And I, just, I can't wait to see what the Lord could do in response to this much truth packed into one passage. So let me pray, and let's ask for what only God can do. Let's pray.
Lord, indeed. So much for us here. I want to pray in advance that we would listen and that we would obey. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, with the authority that that provides, that this sermon, this series, that all of our sermons would not simply be academic exercises. That we would not walk away and say, wow, that was really informative. But that we would walk away and say, God got a hold of me in this way, and he showed his love to me in a new and fresh way. Lord, that's what we're asking for. For endurance. For power. For an increase in the knowledge of God. For a greater gratitude for the gospel and our redemption and our forgiveness and all the other things in this passage. We want to pray like Paul. And we trust that you will answer. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.